This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. If I could leave, I should fly from this house of horror with my nightdress flapping at my heels. But I cannot. I have become a pawn in a deeper, darker drama. Do not ask how I know. I only do. Mrs. Cloris was right when she spoke of blood calling to blood, and how horribly right when she spoke of those who watch and those who guard. I fear I have wakened a force which has slept in the tenebrous village of Jerusalem's lot for half a century, a force which has slain my ancestors and taken them in unholy bondage as Nosferatu, the undead. And I have greater fears than these bones, but I still see only in part. If I knew, if I only knew all. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, and I'm back with another short review of a Stephen King short story, Jerusalem's Lot. If this is your first time listening to one of our Books and Nachos Stephen King reviews, welcome. And to provide you some background, here at Books and Nachos, I will be reading and reviewing all of Stephen King's published and collected works. This is being done in parallel to another series going on at NowPlayingPodcast.com, where I, along with my co-hosts Stuart and Jacob, are watching and reviewing all of the films based on Stephen King's writings. Those podcasts focus specifically on the adaptations of the King works, though, and I wanted to do a deeper dive and analysis of King's prose, exploring what makes King's books such compulsive reads that made him one of the best-selling authors of our time. While Now Playing is going in strict order based upon King's publication date, I'm going in a bit looser in order, though generally following that same through line so we can see King evolve as a writer. In the archives at booksandnachos.com, you can already find reviews of King's first two published novels, Carrie and Salem's Lot. But before we get to his next published book, I wanted to review the two short stories King wrote to tie into that latter title. Last week, I reviewed One for the Road, a sequel to Salem's Lot, and today I'm reviewing Jerusalem's Lot. Jerusalem's Lot was originally published in 1978 as the lead story in King's Night Shift collection. While that anthology consisted mostly of previously published King works, Jerusalem's Lot was one of only four stories never published before that collection. It seems like a good marketing move to put both Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road in the Night Shift collection. Salem's Lot had been a paperback bestseller, and by including these stories, billed as a prequel and sequel to Salem's Lot, those who read and enjoyed King's vampire book would be more interested in picking up Night Shift, and, as a byproduct, reading even more of King's stories. And as I mentioned in my review of Salem's Lot and One for the Road, Salem's Lot received a 30th anniversary collector's edition in 2005, and in that book the two connected short stories were also reprinted. And while Jerusalem's Lot was the first story in Night Shift, and chronologically takes place before the events of Salem's Lot and One for the Road, the 2005 edition reversed the printing order, putting One for the Road first. As that appears to be the author's current intended reading order for these stories, I'm reviewing Jerusalem's Lot as the final Salem's Lot tale, rather than go in the fictional chronological order or the original Night Shift structure. While Jerusalem's Lot was the last of these three stories published, it was actually the first written by King. While still an English student at the University of Maine in the mid to late 1960s, King wrote several short stories, including one called Jerusalem's Lot. 
when King had his Dracula in the 20th century idea, he went back to this undergrad work he'd written, and the result was his 1975 novel. When it comes to his early writings, specifically Carrie and what came before, King is often his own harshest critic. As his writing style evolved, he has realized the flaws that caused publishers to reject his early novels. As such, it's impossible to tell if the short story published in Night Shift in 1978 was identical to the college manuscript, or if King gave it a rewrite before allowing it to be distributed to his readers. But having studied the man, I strongly believe the latter. King is a revisionist by nature, with the epitome of this being his revised and uncut 1990 edition of The Stand. For that new edition, King not only had the original pages of his manuscript added back to the book, he also went back and did a minor rewrite on the entire novel to smooth out some things and to update the book for the then-modern time of 1990. Given this, I cannot imagine King would take one of his earliest writings and put it out as the lead tale in his first short story anthology. That said, it's also my assumption that if this was revised, it was done strictly for style and not for story. Allow me to explain. When I was researching Salem's Lot for my podcast analysis, I learned about these two short stories and their placement in the timeline compared to Salem's Lot. As I read King's vampire book, I saw storylines that I thought were rife with potential for a sequel, as I mentioned in One for the Roads review. But I also saw areas of the novel I'd have loved to see and explored in a prequel. For example, in Salem's Lot, King tells of Hubie Marsden, whose day job is mafia hitman, and whose hobbies were Satan worship and child murdering. Hubie is left mostly unexplained in the novel. Why did he go insane and kill his wife, then himself? How did he come in contact with a European antique dealer who we would come to know as Barlow? What did he say to Barlow that enticed the vampire to come to Salem's lot to nest and feed? All these areas were backstories that could have been both interesting and horrific. But given that Salem's Lot was about vampires and Marsden was a human monster, I also wondered if we might see a tale from Barlow's past. Would we find out about the mysterious town of Momsen, Vermont, mentioned so often in Salem's Lot? Would we finally find out what caused that town to dry up? Had Barlow or one of his vampire ancestors visited Jerusalem's Lot, Maine before? Or would the story be set in Europe? I wasn't sure where it would go, but I was at least certain by the story's reprinting in Salem's Lot Collector's Edition that this would be a third story about vampires. And despite how certain I was, I was dead wrong. To put it out there, I think it's a misnomer to call Jerusalem's Lot an earlier tale of Salem's Lot, or to even say the story takes place in the same reality as Salem's Lot. This short story has no vampires, no runaway pigs, no Hubie Marston, no Barlow, and no Straker. As someone who was hoping for an original tale that fleshed out the backstory of King's sprawling novel, I really was disappointed. More, this story tells of Jerusalem's lot in the 19th century when the town is deserted. And in the book Salem's Lot, King was so thorough in giving a blow-by-blow -blow of the town's history from its original incorporation through its death in the 1970s, there was simply no room left for the town to have had a long period of abandonment before resettling. It makes no sense to try and retcon the history of Salem's Lot and to try to make this story part of the history, as some King books, fan sites, and chronologies have done. But while the fanboy in me was let down by what this story isn't, the English major in me was actually really excited by what this story was. While not tied fictionally to Salem's Lot, it's very clear that Jerusalem's Lot is a vestigial version of the story King would later tell of a supernatural force in Maine leaving Salem's Lot a ghost town. 
Told through a series of letters written in October of 1850, Jerusalem's Lot tells the story of Charles Boone, a writer and widower who, with his manservant Calvin McCann, has moved to Preacher's Corners, Maine, just nine miles north of Portland. The two men take residence in a house called Chapelwaite, left to Charles by his late estranged cousin Stephen. While Chapelwaite has fallen into disrepair while abandoned, and is decorated with strange Greek statues and an unkempt garden, it's a huge abode built upon a high hill that allows Charles to look out both on the town as well as of the Atlantic Ocean. From this high vantage, Charles hopes to write his next novel. But within his first week in the house, Charles and Calvin realize the townspeople are exceptionally superstitious of Chapelwaite and think the two men mad for living in the cursed house. The locals refuse to deliver firewood to the house, and the cleaning ladies rush through their job. Charles thinks himself too modern and sophisticated to believe in ghosts, but he does hear some sounds in the walls that he takes to be rats. Calvin initially agrees with that theory, despite lack of droppings and other evidence, until one night the sounds change to a gurgling and scratching sound. Investigating, Calvin uncovers a map in a hidden bookcase, which shows the nearby town of Jerusalem's lot, and, written on the map, the words, The Worm That Doth Corrupt. The two men visit Salem's Lot to find it not just deserted, but abandoned. In the hundred years that the town had been empty, no one had looted the houses for valuables, nor had kids vandalized the buildings and broken the windows. Entering the Jerusalem's Lot church, the men find an inverted cross, a sign of Satan worship, and on the pulpit wasn't a Bible, but a leather-bound tome entitled, The Mysteries of the Worm. Charles becomes obsessed trying to discover the history of Chapelwaite in Jerusalem's Lot. Throughout the tale, he does discover what happened to the residents of the ghost town and how the town caused the rift between his grandfather Robert and Robert's brother Philip, a rift that would continue and cause Charles's estrangement from cousin Stephen. Because I try to keep these reviews spoiler-free, I won't tell you exactly what Charles uncovers, but I will say it's not vampires, and it's also not the nebulous evil for which Straker performs a human sacrifice in Salem's Lot. As such, I see Jerusalem's Lot not as a prequel story to Salem's Lot, but as an early draft of what would someday become Salem's Lot. For there are many, many parallels with this short story and that novel. Both involve a writer wanting to move into a large abandoned house to work on their next novel. In Salem's Lot, it was Ben Mears wanting to go to the Marsden house, and here it's Charles going to Chapelwaite. In both stories, the house sits atop a high ground overlooking a town whose residents believe the manse to be cursed or haunted. Both have two men, outsiders to the town, move into the house, a master and his servant. And most telling, in both stories, a cursed man committed murder in the haunted house before hanging himself. And in both tales, the main character believes this decaying corpse reaches out to attack them. The parallels between the two stories are such that it's not just that one echoes the other, but that direct moments and ideas from one were put in the other. I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, being published later and sold as an original short story related to the Salem's Lot novel, this tale starts off confusing. I wondered if Chapelwaite was the Marsden house by another name, but that didn't mesh as Hubie Marsden was said to have commissioned the house himself. I next thought that perhaps this hill was the same upon which the Marsden house would someday be built, but when it's made clear that this is a coastal town adjacent to Jerusalem's lot, then I realized it's another house on another hill and just a repeating of the same ideas. More, in both stories, the writer is a widower, as were the two men and one for the road. Jerusalem's lot and the surrounding towns just don't seem suited for men with living wives. There are also many echoes of King's novel The Shining in this story. 
As a reminder, The Shining was the book published immediately after Salem's Lot, but King's constant readers would have read it before reading Jerusalem's Lot the story. But a man moving into a house or hotel where bad things took place, including suicide, and slowly going mad while being haunted? This is a story that by its publication in Night Shift would have been very familiar to King fans. And I think the redundancy of this story is part of the reason I found myself not enjoying it. It excited me intellectually to have King's writing evolution laid so bare in front of me, but this story itself seemed lesser for the similarities. But there is one area in which the two stories differ greatly. Given how directly Salem's Lot was influenced by Bram Stoker's Dracula, and given that this short story is epistolary, as Dracula was, told mostly through correspondence, a logical assumption would be this story was also inspired by Stoker. It's the logical assumption, but again a false one. If Salem's Lot was Stoker, and one for the road is Poe, Jerusalem's Lot is pure H.P. Lovecraft. Again, the story is of a man losing his wits as he researches an evil force, discovering ancient texts about the evil. I won't tell you how King describes the evil in the town, but I will say you might as well call it Cthulhu. The description given in the story is very nebulous and vague, but that led me to think of Lovecraft's famous demon even more. When the same shades of vague demons and madness are in The Shining, they were much more subtle than they are here. The Lovecraftian influence continues not only as a version of the Cthulhu myth, but also as a retelling of Lovecraft's 1924 tale, The Rats in the Walls. Both stories are first-person tales of men moving into an ancestor's home in a faraway land, a home where, unbeknownst to the new owner, heinous acts occurred in the name of pagan ritual, a house which the local townspeople view with superstition and fear, refusing to provide local services, and upon moving in, the men hear sounds that they can only logically attribute to rats in the walls. The setting of the story also helps drive it home. The time period and the manner in which the characters speak all feel written by someone with an intimate knowledge of and love for Lovecraft's work. And perhaps King even intended his story to be a continuation of Lovecraft's writings. In research after I read the story, I found a book called The Tales of Cthulhu Mythos, which has Lovecraft's original stories, as well as stories by other authors that build off that mythos, and the very last tale in that book is none other than Stephen King's Jerusalem's Lot. But I think the time period works against King as an author. In the two novels I've reviewed here on Books and Nachos, I've loved his effortless way of setting a scene and the way he can communicate mood through lyrics and poems as well as 1970s familiar brands and topics. He made the worlds feel real to the reader, making the reader comfortable before he would then turn the narrative horrific. In this strange 19th century time, King is robbed of his go-to references. We have no lyrics from Buffalo Gals or other pop music of the period, and whether it's the time period or King's as-yet-unrefined storytelling ability when this was written, the characters and settings never feel real, and I never become engaged in the story. I did enjoy reading Lovecraft in my younger years, and Cthulhu is his most enduring creation, but I never fully embraced Lovecraft's writing style, and that also may be working against me with Jerusalem's lot. I think for those horror fans who enjoy both Lovecraft and King, this story will be a wonderful nexus. But for me, it lacked an entertainment value. My enjoyment of reading this came strictly from seeing the fetal shape of the story that would become Salem's Lot, but not from Jerusalem's Lot itself. By the time we reach a cliffhanger of an ending, much like the one King had in Carrie, I was more than through with the story, and I found it a disappointing way to conclude the Salem's Lot trilogy, as it were. 
if you buy the collector's edition of Salem's Lot, this is the last tale you're given, and I find it to be the least of the three. But perhaps because it was released in a magical time where King's ascent to the top of the bestseller list couldn't be stopped, or perhaps because Cthulhu worshippers are amongst us and I don't even know it, this story has endured. In addition to the reprinting of the Lovecraft compilation book and the 2005 edition of Salem's Lot, an audiobook adaptation was done as part of a Night Shift collection, and Jerusalem's Lot was also adapted for the collectible book Secretary of Dreams. While One for the Road was done in Secretary of Dreams Volume 2, Jerusalem's Lot is one of the six King short stories included in the first volume. And unlike One for the Road, Jerusalem's Lot is not text incorporated with pictures, but rather, there are detailed illustrations placed alongside the text in a more typical, less comic book fashion. I did read that version of the story as well, and found the illustrations to be mostly unnecessary, save for that final nebulous evil that King reveals. If you're the type of reader that I used to be where I had to mentally envision everything I read, these drawings will help give form to the formless and solidify a vision, if not the vision, of the demons found in Jerusalem's Lot. But with this final tale, I'm ready to leave Salem's Lot behind. Its story has been told, and retold, by King in just a couple short years. In fact, I'm ready to leave Maine altogether and travel to Colorado for a stay in the Overlook Hotel. As I mentioned, between the publication of Salem's Lot the novel and Jerusalem's Lot release in the Night Shift collection, King had one more book published, and it may be his most famous work still today, The Shining. Over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we're preparing our review of Kubrick's original adaptation of the novel, and I'll be reading and reviewing it here at BooksandNachos.com. And then, jumping in the timeline, I'll be coming back a bit later with a review of King's newest book as of this recording, Doctor Sleep, his sequel to The Shining. In the meantime, please let me know your thoughts on Jerusalem's Lot. It's my first fairly negative King review. Do you disagree? Send me your thoughts at arnie at booksandnachos.com or come to the Books and Nachos forums where you can discuss all of our book reviews and the stories themselves with me and the other podcast listeners. These shows take a lot of work and research to do, so if you're enjoying them, please let me know. And if you're really enjoying them, you can also help spread the word by leaving Books and Nachos a written 5-star review on iTunes. Links to our iTunes page, our forums, and our archives are all available at our website, booksandnachos.com. So until next time, constant listener, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.